Welcome to The Way Things Go There, a podcast about quotes from books and how we can apply them to real life. I'm Tiff Cohen. Today is going to be uh, part one of many parts. I can't tell you how many parts. I'm not going to make episodes about every single chapter, but like a lot of them. So the book I'm talking about is South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of a Nation by Imani Perry. I think a large part of why I wanted to read this book was because I recently sent in my DNA to be analyzed and have gone down the rabbit hole that is Ancestry.com. And this book is kind of related to that and similar in that aspect as um, it's described as This is the story of a black woman and native Alabaman returning to the region she has always called home and considering it with fresh eyes. Her journey is full of detours, deep dives, and surprising encounters with places and people. Moving across the color line, she renders Southerners from all walks of life with sensitivity and honesty, sharing her thoughts about a troubling history and the ritual humiliations and joys that characterize so much of Southern life. She touches on a lot of different things that a lot of people would think is really just from the South and only concerns Southerners, but really, you know, a lot of what America is was built in the South. She even explores the idea of, is D.C. the South? And those conversations are interesting. So, yeah, today's excerpt I wanted to share first because of a conversation that I had with my nine and six-year-old recently when I was reading them a book. So I will share with you the excerpt from the book first, and then we'll talk about that. This is from actually the last chapter of the book. I was tired and about to return to my hotel, but we figured we would visit the bar where Hemingway famously hung out. I walked in first. The bouncer put his hand out. It was a clear no. Louise protested. We were told that this was for tourists. The claim that I was a tourist held no sway. I have Hemingway-esque outfits in my closet, smaller-sized, tapered-waist guyambreras that I match with gray-tailored slacks. But when I am in the Caribbean, I wear cotton shift dresses, usually light or bright in color, with simple brown sandals. Dresses like the ones my mother used to make for us when I was small. Dresses like women of my grandmother's generation wore across the South. Good for the heat and ladylike. Dresses like women in tropical places often still wear in an everyday way because they are both cool and elegant. Vamo, I said. The sense of injustice on Luisa's face was, of course, not so much about me being misrecognized. It was about race. It was about status. It was about the thing that had stayed on even over a hundred years since slavery ended. It was about our brown faces that mark us as not belonging to places we enter all over the Americas. It was the same thing that had happened to me at a hotel in Salvador de Bahia, guess only, at Saks in Philadelphia. Are you actually looking for something or and on and on? When Langston Hughes traveled to Cuba, he'd been kicked off a beach in the Dominican Republic, like I had. Hughes had a local politician interviewing on his behalf, but despite the fact that my friend and I had paid $20 US to visit the beach and protested in English, 
we were treated rudely and ultimately disbelieved. People make a big to-do about the fact that there are gradations of race throughout the Americas, as though the one-drop rule in the United States is somehow crueler. But one thing I know is that the residues of empire colonialism, trans-Atlantic slave trade, mean that no matter where you are, the blacker you are, the lower your status. And any sort of blackness at all can sometimes serve as a reason to kick you out, as the light, caramel, wavy-haired Langston Hughes was an example of. Mulatto as he might have been in the Cuban racial order, he was too black for that beach. So the situation that Amani Perry is describing in this chapter is about how she went to Cuba and she hooked up with some locals to kind of see exactly what Cuba was like and not just from a tourist lens. And um, this was her experience. I was motivated to share this excerpt first because I recently read Michelle Obama's second book, The Light We Carry, and in it she talks about how she joined the Black Student Unions in college where there weren't very many Black students. And a lot of her classmates that were in the Black Student Union were what she called onlys. So they have come from neighborhoods and schools as they grew up where they were the only black person or the only black family. And she describes how the fact that they were the only ones didn't steal their black culture from them. And that's definitely something that I am worried about with my kids where we currently live. It is predominantly white and I get nervous that my children are not going to be around enough diversity and how that's going to shape them as adults. I grew up in a very diverse neighborhood a very, and I went to very diverse schools, yet I never really connected with my Black culture because of the groups that I chose to hang out with, because of my family dynamics for a myriad of reasons. So I don't really know. I'm kind of in this like limbo area of I want to make sure that my children are proud of who they are and they're just like this beautiful mixture of things and I don't want them to be motivated to hate any part of themselves. So we've been getting a lot of books from the library and learning about the history of being black in America since, um, surprise, surprise, they're not going to learn that going to school. Um, and the kids are really just like, they're, so again, for reference, they're, they're nine and six. And at first their reactions are, that's not fair. I'm really mad. Like the anger, especially in my nine-year-old was really intense. And he was just like, I want to beat them up and I want to do this. And I'm like, well, okay, well, we're going to listen to these stories of how people changed things so you don't have to experience what they experienced and they did these things through you know non-violent means and of course the one person that they teach about in school is Martin Luther King Jr. So with the recent holiday that passed being the national holiday for Martin Luther King Jr. we got a book from the library and got to learn about his upbringing And we get to a page where Martin is talking about the differences in schools for black kids and for white kids. And my my six-year-old is looking at the page and she sees the picture of the, the cool playground and the clean classroom and the toys and the books on the white kids' side. 
And then she sees like the dirt road and the no windows and just the gloom and doom on the black school side. And she says, yay, we get to go to the cool playground. And I was like, oh, honey, you know, if you lived at this time, um, you would have to go to this school that doesn't look like fun because you are black. And she's like, but no, look at my skin. My skin is white. My children's skin is very light. I obviously haven't had their DNA analyzed, but my, I am 35% black. So say they are about 15 to 20% black and they do have, you know, more ethnic features, but they definitely pass for white. Um, and I explain these things to them. And so my nine-year-old says, well, if they didn't see you, if they didn't know that you were brown, then we could go to the cool school, right? You could imagine how heartbreaking that was to hear them say that. Um, this was not the first book that we had read about the civil rights era and how blacks were treated up, you know, in Jim Crow law times. Um, so they, they know that things have changed and what people did to change them yet they're still really just trying to hang on to well if no one knows then it's okay so we had we had a big discussion about what's right and what's wrong and how our actions in the face of something that's wrong really determines who we are as people and that it's important to have pride in who we are and not let anyone make the decision that we're not valuable. Yeah, so this section really hit me because in the situation where Imani Perry was in Cuba, she looked too authentic, right? It looked like her her money was not valuable there because she wasn't a white tourist. And this is in a nation full of black people. <laughs> so where do we go from here, right? And I think that it's important that we take Black history into our own hands because it's not going to be taught in schools. It's not going to be nurtured in the entertainment business, although it's starting to to be celebrated and valued. It's I think it's in our hands as parents and uncles and aunts and grandparents that we show that black history is valuable and that black people are valuable whether your skin is on the darkest side of the spectrum or you have to determine how squishy their nose is to determine if they're black right um how do you do that as someone who isn't enmeshed in black culture i think libraries are a great place to start we you know live in a predominantly white area but our library is fantastic we, I'm very grateful to have that resource. And I think it's important for my children especially to know their own family history. And I have really dove deep into Ancestry.com to learn the stories on both sides of their family and to explain to them, you know, what their ancestors had to go through to make it possible for them to even be here. So say you don't have any near black ancestors in your family? How can you support valuing black history? Go to your library. 
um, talk to your friends of color, read the books on your own, read South to America by Imani Perry, and you will be motivated, <laughs> believe you me, um, to do the research and dig in and find resources and find stories of people who aren't Martin Luther King Jr. that your kids can look up to. Of course, not discounting Martin Luther King Jr. to any extent, but there are so many people that that it took to have the ability to go to the same school as someone who doesn't look like you, to, to share a water fountain, to be able to have a, a desk at the same job as someone who doesn't look like you. So when your child says, hey, Martin Luther King Jr., yeah, <laughs> I want you to go there and be like, yeah, he was awesome. Let's also talk about Ida B. Wells, A. Philip Randolph, John Lewis, Angela Davis. The list goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And that concludes part one of South to America, part one of that many that comes. <laughs> Thanks again for joining me on The Way Things Go There, and don't forget to have hope. <laughs>